Chapter 12 of The Romance of Plant Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Romance of Plant Life by George Francis Scott Eliot. Chapter 12 On Plants Which Add to Continents. The way in which the savage, rugged, inhospitable Britain of the Ice Age changed into our familiar peaceful country formed the subject of the last chapter. But plants do far more than cover the earth and render it fertile, for some of them assist in winning new land from the sea or from freshwater lakes. The Sea of Aral, for instance, or Lake Chad, are rapidly becoming choked up by reeds and other vegetation. Blown sand from the deserts around is caught and intercepted by these reeds, so that fertile pastures are gradually forming in what used to be the open water of a deepish lake. By far the most extraordinary of all these plants which form new land are the mangroves. They are only found in the tropics or subtropical regions and are always along the sea-coast. It is where a river ends in a delta, dividing into intricate and confused irregular winding creeks, that the mangroves are especially luxuriant. Such a river will have probably flowed through hundreds of miles of the most exuberant tropical forest, where growth is never checked by the cold grasp of winter. Its waters are yellowish-brown or café late colored because they are full of mud and of decaying vegetation, with dead leaves and decaying branches floating on the surface. So full are such rivers of decaying material that they have a distinct and unmistakable smell which has been compared to crushed marigolds. So soon as the muddy water reaches the sea, most of its mud is deposited and forms great banks and shoals of shifting odoriferous slime, which confuses and interferes with the discharging mouth of the river. It is upon these changing, horrible-smelling banks of bottomless slime that the mangrove is especially intended to develop. If one takes a canoe in such a delta and paddles inwards on the incoming tide, a dense forest of glossy green mangroves will be found to cover the whole coastline and also to extend far inland by the winding creeks, lagoons, and river channels. The whole theory of the mangroves becomes clearly revealed as soon as the water begins to sink at low tide. First, one notices that the stem of every mangrove ends below, not in a single trunk, but in an enormous number of arched, stilt-like supporting roots. Not only the stem, but the branches also give off descending roots, which branch into four or five grasping arched fingers as soon as they get near the water. When they reach the mud, these fingers grow down into it and form a new supporting root to the tree. It is very difficult to give any idea of the extraordinary appearance of these mangrove roots. Imagine an orchard of very old apple trees in winter, and suppose that one were to cut off every tree and planted upside down in black mud, and also to crowd them so closely together 
that the branches were all mixed and confused. This might give an idea of the odd and strange appearance of the root system in a mangrove forest. Upon these arching roots, even on those which are not yet attached, multitudes of oysters may be seen. There is also a little fish, a sort of perch, which climbs up onto the roots or out of the mud below, and gasps or squatters about in it. As to the mud itself, it is a horrible, greasy, oozy, black or blue-black slime of bottomless depth. It is full of organic putrefying, strongly smelling material, clearly full of bacteria. The water itself is sometimes covered by a dirty, oily scum, and air bubbles rising from the bottom spread out on the surface and let loose the microbes in the atmosphere. There are many crocodiles, which may be seen reposing on the mud above high tide. It is difficult to distinguish them from a rough log of wood, but it is still more difficult to kill them, for their scales turn any ordinary bullet. There is scarcely any experience more exasperating than when, after one has been taken a long, careful and accurate aim, one observes the sleeping brute suddenly wake and scurry down in the, to the water with a hideous leer on its face. Sea cows, or manatees, are said to live in these creeks. Little ducks of many kinds rise in hundreds and thousands, but the commonest bird is the curlew, either a wimbrel or closely allied to it. During the day they sift the mud with their long, curved beaks for insects, and at sunset fly down in vast numbers to the mud banks near the sea. A miserable little white crane called Poor Joe is common, and has the same habit. It is not worth shooting, and it is quite aware of the fact. Herons, cormorants, and other birds are often to be seen. Monkeys sometimes visit the mangroves, probably to eat oysters or crabs. There are several kinds of crab-like creatures which climb up the roots, and may be seen running about all over them. But during the three weeks spent by the writer in the Mahela Creeks of Sierra Leone, it was the insects that made the deepest impression upon him. As soon as the evening falls, the mosquitoes appear in myriads and in millions. Such creeks and mangrove swamps are always fever-stricken and dangerous, and probably enjoy the very worst climate in the whole world. Of course, nowadays, when Sir Patrick Manson and Dr. Ross have discovered that the mosquito carries the malaria germ, it is possible with great care to guard against malaria. One has also the satisfaction of knowing that the mosquito itself cannot be perfectly at ease with all these tiny parasites attacking its digestive organs. At first sight, such swamps appear to be useless, impossible and dangerous. But that is not the case. No one, of course, would ever willingly reside in mangrove swamps, and the mangroves themselves are of scarcely any use to man, although the bark does sometimes furnish a useful tanning material. But, indirectly, the mangroves are one of the most important of all nature's geographical agents. On those horrible, slimy, shifting mud banks, no other plants could manage to exist. If one looks carefully at the seaward side of the last of the mangrove swamps, then it's easy to see that they are colonizing and reclaiming the mud.
Not only do the roots depending from the branches grasp and colonize new mug, but the seedlings are also specially adapted to fulfill the same office. They remain a long time attached to the parent fruit. They also grow to a considerable length before they fall off. When ready to fall, they have a distinct seedling stem, which swells out towards the base and ends in a pointed root. The seedling is, in fact, like a club hanging upside down and with a pointed end. When it does fall, it goes straight down deep into the mud. Then it promptly forms some anchoring roots, and the young mangrove is fixed in new mud and begins to develop, so that the forest continually grows towards the sea. Such mud banks soon become pierced by roots in every direction. Then the leaves of the mangroves themselves, as well as silt, soil, and rubbish floating in the water, gradually accumulate about and round these roots. This must raise the level of the ground. Eventually, the soil becomes hardened and is above the level of the water. When this happens, the mangrove, which likes salt water about its roots, becomes unhealthy and the ordinary jungle trees kill it and take its place. Thus, in course of time, when the jungle is cleared, fertile rice fields may be thriving on what was once a pure, or rather impure, mud bank. In this way, by the continual development of the mangroves, enormous stretches of land are being added to the continents, and the process continues so long as the character of the coastline favors it. The shoreline covered by these mangrove swamps is enormous. In fact, within the tropics, one finds them almost everywhere along the seashore. But coral, rock, or an exceedingly dry climate such as that of Arabia or northern Peru, prevents their growth. Central and South America, West and East Africa, India, Polynesia, Australia, and much of the Asiatic coastline is covered by mangroves. Theophrastus speaks of those in the Persian Gulf, and that exceedingly shrewd botanist has some valuable notes about them, worth reading even today. In temperate countries, such as our own, the districts where great rivers enter the sea are for the most part aguish and rheumatic, but of course there is nothing so startling and extraordinary as the mangrove swamps. Yet, even in temperate countries, the work of winning or gaining new land plods steadily onward, and it is performed by humble, inconspicuous little plants. Where the Rhone enters the Mediterranean, there are some 14,000 acres of sandy and clayey land called the Camargue. The bare sand near the sea is often flooded and swept by violent storms in winter. Anything which tries to grow there is usually carried off and destroyed. But, after a time, one finds here and there a solitary plant of a kind of saltwort. Salicornia macrostachia, which has withstood the strain. Its branches gather a little sand and hold it together, and its roots gradually explore and tie down the soil around it. Next winter it can stand the sweep and score of the stormy water. Next summer other plants begin to grow on this tiny sand heap, and the torodon, as it is called, is now fairly well established. 
It goes on growing until it may be, after a few years, six feet in diameter. Eventually the salt gets washed out of the soil, and these little heaps become united by a continuous covering of green plants, in which shrubs and then trees begin to grow. By this time, of course, the sand has accumulated farther out to sea, and the same process is going on there. In Britain, we have the sea meadows of sea grass, which covers the submerged sand and mud banks near the mouth of great rivers. The waving green grass-like leaves from a rich submarine meadow. They are used for stuffing pillows and cushions, especially in Venice, but their real importance in the world depends upon their being able to tie down and fix permanently those unseen shifting banks which form a real danger to all navigation. These plants are very remarkable. They lived, no doubt, at one time on the land, like most of the flowering plants. But like the whale and the seal, they have been driven to take refuge below the ocean. They are not easily seen, and indeed, one may wander for years along the sea coast and never suspect that great meadows of zostera, the eelwrack, grassrack, or sea grass, are flourishing underwater. But, one might ask, how is the pollen of its flowers carried? Obviously, neither insects nor the wind can be of any service. The pollen of zostera is, however, of the same weight exactly as the water, so that it neither rises to the surface nor sinks to the bottom, but floats to and fro until it reaches the outspread styles of another plant. This is perhaps the most remarkable arrangement known for the carrying of pollen. Sometimes along the seashore, or especially on the muddy foreshore of an estuary or tidal river, one can watch those plants which are trying to form new land. One finds generally that there is a broad stretch of marshy meadow, interrupted and intersected by small ditches and little winding streams. As one gets towards the shore, seeping, scurvy grass and aster, and other plants, not to be found elsewhere, become common. Then stretching out into the mud, there are rows of curious reeds and sedges. Try to pull up one of these reeds, and you will find a strong, buried, stringy stem with hundreds of anchoring roots. These are the pioneers which first fix the sand. Over the surface of the sand between these upright stems, one often comes upon a most beautiful, glossy, dark green, velvety cushion. It is composed of a seaweed called washeria, whose twined and interlaced threads form a thick, silky cushion. But it is only beautiful to look at from above. If you pull up a piece of this cushion, you will find that it is growing on black and loathly mud, with many wriggling worms and horrible animacula. First, these pioneer reeds, then this soft, silky carpet of washeria, and then the seepings, and other estuarine marsh flowers gradually creep forward and extend over the bare muddy sand, so winning it from the sea for the use of cattle. In the worst winter storms, when the waves are thundering heavily over these sands, it seems as if nothing could resist them. Yet, if you go down when the storm is over, 
no harm has been done. There is the silky green cushion of Vosheria, and there are the lines of pioneer sedges and reeds, quite undisturbed. The reeds bend and sway, yielding to the water. The seaweed is as slimy and oily, and the water cannot endure it. But yet, the strength of these seaweeds is extraordinary, and indeed almost incredible. More remarkable still, perhaps, are those seaweeds which grow upon rocks, often where the full strength of the waves beats upon them. After a heavy storm, when perhaps the great timbers of groins and the heavy concrete blocks of an esplanade have been shattered to pieces and tossed all over the shore, one may go down to the shore and there will be no visible difference in the kelps and tangles of the rocks. Scarcely any seem to have been broken away. Indeed, if one looks in the rubbish left by the last high tide, one finds that when one of these alarias has been broken away, it is often because the stone itself has been torn out of the rock. One finds broken off stones with the seaweed still attached to them. The reason is that the outside of the seaweed is oily, slimy or slippery, so that the water gets no hold of it. The stem and substance is also elastic and surprisingly strong, so that the daily tossing and wrenching when the tides come in and go out has no effect in tearing it away. But if you go down to a dry dock and look at the hull of a ship which has come in to be cleaned and scraped, you will see that it is entirely covered by seaweeds and shells. That ship has been driven through the water perhaps at ten miles an hour or more, and yet those delicate-looking seaweeds have held on. It is more surprising still, if you can get some of them and examine them with a microscope, for amongst them are tiny, delicate, graceful little fronds and sprays, which one would think consisted of nothing but jelly, yet they have been able to thrive and grow, on the ship's hull, while it has been hurrying day and night through the sea, in calm or in tempest, and in currents of hot or cold water. Those seaweeds were called by Horace algae inutils, or useless seaweeds, but are they useless? Go down to a little pool and watch them waving in the water. Could anything be more beautiful than these little graceful red, yellow, or brown sprays? All sorts of sea slugs, shrimps, and minute animals of weird and wonderful design are clearly living on them. Fishes live upon these animals, and fishes are an extremely useful and excellent food for man. End of chapter 12